Welcome to the Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues of our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Sponsored by the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Georgine Rice. This week, as Ukraine continues to be battered by Russian artillery, Ukrainian President Zelensky addresses the U.S. Congress. Being the leader of the world means to be the leader of peace. We'll offer some analysis. I mean, the guy is Churchillian in nature. What I mean by that is, you know, he told Putin that when you attack me, you'll see my face, not my back. Lessons China may well be learning as the conflict unfolds. NATO's got to stand up and strengthen its conventional nuclear deterrence. And why are we using Russia as the mediator on yet another Iran deal? My observation is my head is exploding. Plus, Idaho passes a heartbeat bill modeled on the Texas legislation. We'll look at the media coverage of that bill. It is a heartbeat, even if you want to try to redefine it as an early embryonic electrical cardiac activity. All this and more. I'm Georgine Rice. Glad to be with you once again. I'm coming to you from Portland, Oregon, and my home station of KPDQ. You can hear my own program live each weekday afternoon on 93.9 FM here in Portland and online via our website at kpdq.com and also through the TuneIn radio app. Take a moment to follow the Christian Outlook on Twitter at TC Outlook. That's TC Outlook. Thanks for joining us. We'll begin with Ukraine. Russian forces continued their devastating shelling of Ukrainian cities this past week. The Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, has made his desperate case for help over and over again. On Wednesday of this week, Zelensky spoke via video link to Congress. Today, it's not enough to be the leader of the nation. Today, it takes to be the leader of the world. Being the leader of the world means to be the leader of peace. Peace in your country doesn't depend anymore only on you and your people. It depends on those next to you, on those who are strong. Strong doesn't mean weak. Strong is brave and ready to fight for the life of his citizens and citizens of the world, for human rights, for freedom, for the right to live decently, and to die when your time comes and not when it's wanted by someone else, by your neighbor. Today, the Ukrainian people are defending not only Ukraine, we are fighting for the values of Europe and the world, sacrificing our lives in the name of the future. I'm addressing the President Biden. You are the leader of the nation, of your great nation. I wish you to be the leader of the world. Being the leader of the world means to be the leader of peace. Dan Balls, writing for the Washington Post, described it bluntly. Short in length, powerful in words, graphic in imagery, the address was a pointed challenge to President Biden to do more to help Zelensky's beleaguered country. Kevin McCullough turned to General Keith Kellogg, a retired lieutenant general in the United States Army. They spoke prior to Zelensky's address to Congress from AM 570, the mission in New York City. What does he need to tell them at this point? Look, I think what he'll do is he'll he'll have the emotional appeal. I mean, the guy is Churchillian in nature. And what I mean by that is this is a guy who's standing in fights. He's still in Kiev. 
I, you know, he told Putin that, you know, when you attack me, you'll see my face, not my back. And, and that'll resonate well because it's such an emotional appeal. And then he's probably going to ask for continued support. He's going to say, I'm pretty sure I don't need your soldiers on the ground, but I need equipment. And, and I think that that will resonate well. And there are things we can do. I know they keep talking about a no-fly zone and putting aircraft but there's other ways to do that and i am i'm kind of surprised and that we haven't been that creative to think about it and here's what i mean is in three nato countries in, in bulgaria slovakia and also in greece there's a russian air defense system called the s-300 it's a very good system it's got an incredible slant range of 100 miles it means it'll pick up an incoming missile or it could pick up an incoming aircraft the distance between Washington, D.C. to Richmond, and can engage eight targets simultaneously, sort of like our Patriot system. And the reason I didn't say Patriot for us is because that'll really be probably a punch in Putin's face, which he deserves. Right. But I think there's ways to get around what they're doing. And, and by the way, every day that Putin does not take Kiev or decapitate the government, meaning take out the leadership, is a day he's losing. He may be winning on the ground in advancing forces, but when you look at what's happening to Russia and their forces, the longer this takes, the worse it is for them. Well, let's talk about what is happening to the Russian troops. Are people quitting? Why did they get bogged down? And how have they been kind of unable to get going again? It seems like on nearly every land front, they've come to a stop on some point. Yeah, and that's because I think we overestimated them. We gave them a lot of credit for where the credit wasn't deserved. They may have modernized their equipment, made it newer. But they haven't upgraded the way they lead and the way they use strategy to attack. You know, I, I said this the other day to somebody. I said I was stunned when he actually came across in three different directions, coming from the south, coming from the east, and coming from the north. I said in the military, you what's called waiting your main attack. And what they should have done is gone after Kiev, take the city, um, and, and take out the government as best they could. And I said, that was just one thing that said, why are they doing this? And then they're uncoordinated. They clearly can't find a joint fight like we were so used to doing. So I'm looking at them and saying, you're not really modernized when it comes to thinking and when it comes to joint command and control. They're kind of fighting the way I saw them fight previously, be it in, in Chechnya or what they did in Syria. They're just using massed artillery, massive forces, and they're doing it by brute strength. And that's the Soviet way, and now that's the Russian way, where we focus, we in the American Army and the American military believe in maneuver and rapid decision-making and decentralized decision-making. You don't see that. And because of that, once they hit an obstacle, like Ukrainians willing to fight, they kind of step back a little bit because they don't have plan B. No nation is watching as intently what's happening in Ukraine and the Western response than China. So what is China learning? Well, that was on my mind as I turned to James Carafano of the Heritage Foundation for my program here in Portland. We wonder if this is going to embolden China, if it's going to make it more reluctant. And you write about that very thing. So let's begin with what China is learning from not only Putin's invasion at this time, but how it's going. First of all, I make clear to people, it's absolutely true that Xi wants to reconquer Taiwan. That's not up for discussion. Mm -hmm. But he will do that on his timeline. And, and he didn't need encouragement or the example of Putin to, to do this. Xi will do this if and when he thinks he can. What they're learning is that Russia's actually turned out to be not such a great partner for China. Because, you know, for China, the war in Ukraine is much more about Europe than it is about Taiwan. China wants a weakened, distracted, and divided Europe. 
because that's better for China. I mean, their whole strategy has always been to divide and conquer in Europe. And so the Russians essentially were, were doing a stalking horse for them. The Russians, you know, attacking Ukraine and weakening NATO, that's the dream scenario for China. But things have turned out exactly like they had wanted. I mean, the Russians, I'm sure, told the Chinese, hey, don't worry. You know, we'll wait till after the Olympics. We'll be done in a couple of days. And then, uh, you know, everybody will just look the other way and go back to normal. It's been a terrible protracted campaign. Um, even if the Russians conquer all of Ukraine, to occupy Ukraine will, in, will require basically the entire Russian military. And this is a country that will be like 40 million people who are starving, have no electricity, and their infrastructure has been completely destroyed. That is going to be a heavy burden, not to mention the incredibly crushing damage to the Russian economy. So here you have China with basically a partner which is an economic basket case that the Chinese cannot bail out. And here is China essentially defending the indefensible. I mean, arguing that the Russians are the just, you know, I mean, that's completely not credible in the world. And so it's damaging to them and their legitimacy. So, yeah, I don't think the Chinese right now are the happiest campers. I mean, this all, they may get through all this. But right now, they can't be very ecstatic about what's going on. Yeah, yeah. And now, Beijing has already had the impression that the West is weak. Russia miscalculated that this invasion would make the, the West weaker. How has that calculus uh, impacted Beijing's impression of the West and how it might respond if China or when China moves forward? Yeah, so there, I think there are two really Im- important observations, because it's a, actually a fantastic question. It's exactly the, the question to get to. One is, look, by their nature, these regimes always want to believe that free and open societies are weaker. I mean, if you, if you remember, Osama bin Laden thought America was a paper tiger after 9-11. They would just collapse if they were attacked. You know, eerily, this this rings of the 1930s, you know, Tojo, who lived in the United States for a while, said, well, Americans are weak people. They just love jazz. You know, Hitler cheered the day after Pearl Harbor because he thought, oh, Americans will collapse. Hitler cheered the day of the Normandy invasion because he thought, you know, they would just crush us because we're weak. So it's not surprising that Xi and Putin, that the leaders of China and Russia have this same belief that, that we are weak and we'll just, you know, fold like a cheap suit. Um, this is only the crisis before the next crisis, unless Europe and, and the United States, the transatlantic community, do two things. The things that allow Putin to threaten Europe are he has a military and he sells people out of energy so he can do energy blackmail. If you, if you take those things off the table, Putin is neutered and irrelevant. If you don't, you're, you're going to be right back where we were in the next crisis, where we are in this crisis. So that means NATO's got to stand up and strengthen its conventional nuclear deterrence. That means allies have to do their part, and we have to do our part. Um, We have to move to energy independence. Um, Europe has to be able to have affordable, reliable, abundant energy without being dependent on Russia. If we do those two things, that will strike fear in the heart of China. It's very clear that the White House has not learned that lesson. They've done such a great job getting everybody worked up over climate change that you know, if you look across political parties and demographics, everybody thinks that doing what we can to protect our planet is important. So they were successful. But, but now that they've got all our attention and we actually look at their plan, we actually see it's all about politics and power. And it really has nothing to do with actually being a good steward of the planet or, or, or energy. And so maybe we will wake up. So, you know, what's really interesting is 
since Biden has come into office, the one part of the energy sector which has shown almost no growth is renewables. Hmm. So think about that. They, they've had a war on gas and oil trying to prevent gas and oil, and they're actually producing. And the part of the economy that they absolutely love and lavish all their praise on, you know, renewables have grown like nothing. And that there's a reason for that, which is this idea that you can power an economy based on renewables defies the laws of physics and chemistry and economics. And so wishing it were so, it doesn't mean it's going to happen. You know, there's talk now of the price of gasoline going to $10 a gallon or $15 a gallon. You know what? It could go to $50 a gallon. You're still never going to get to the point where renewables can power the American economy. It's just not going to happen. Coming up, another nuclear deal with Iran. My observation is my head is exploding. The Christian Outlook returns in a moment. The Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy believes in the calling to politics and public service. As one of the few programs of its kind based at a leading Christian university, we prepare students for exciting careers in this vital arena through a curriculum that combines rigorous study of America's founding principles with the latest tools of policy analysis. The application period for fall 2022 classes has begun. So find out more at pepperdine.edu slash SPP. That's pepperdine.edu slash SPP. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. China is the key observer of Russian aggression that we need to watch closely. But right behind China is Iran and the prospect of another nuclear deal. So who's brokering the proposed new deal with Iran? The answer, Russia. Michael Goodwin of the New York Post is beyond perplexed. Goodwin joined Kevin McCullough. Michael, your most recent piece hits on something that I was hammering all weekend on my television show, and that is that while we're showing almost no leadership in the uh, Ukraine uh, issue at all, we are really being entangled, bamboozled, and kind of beaten in other uh, theaters, specifically the Iran nuclear deal, uh, where Russia is now the kind of the, the referee or the arbitrator between Iran and the United States. You wrote about this. Your observations. My observation is my head is exploding. Uh, the, the simple idea that, A, we would do another deal with Iran that would effectively tie our hands more than theirs. But secondly, that we are allowing Vladimir Putin's Russia to be the broker between us and Iran. Now, Iran will not talk to America directly, which should for my mind, be a disqualification of any kind of a deal. If they won't talk to you, why would you assume that you can take their word for anything? I mean, it's Michael, it's let me ask you, let me just cut to the chase here. D- did they keep the original agreement? Of course not. Okay, so no, they're not even no, talking to no, us. No, why no, does no, Joe no. Biden think he's you know, delusional enough to think that they're even, if they won't talk to you, why do we think they're going to keep a, a second deal? Look, I think there are a lot of things about Joe Biden that are inexplicable. And to my mind, uh, he's on a sort of automatic pilot with some of these decisions, whether it's the people around him or or Barack Obama phoning in to say, well, tomorrow you're going to do this and then Wednesday you're going to say that. Who knows? But it doesn't make any sense what they're doing. And I think there was a lot of speculation uh, about who is really running the White House, who is making these decisions, because they don't add up to any coherence. I mean, we've, we've all talked about the energy ridiculousness of blocking American energy 
and then going through the phone book to get the newest dictator to replace the Russian energy that we've embargoed. I mean, so why not use American energy? Why must you go to some other foreign land that is not necessarily secure and who gets the benefit of the jobs? I mean, is that a Green New Deal result or is that just stupidity or both? I mean, there are all of these decisions that simply don't make sense on their face. And I think that that's part of the biggest problem with the Biden administration. It does and says these things that ordinary people, they don't need an interpreter. They can see it. It just doesn't make sense to them. And I think that's why you're seeing his approval ratings, you know, in the mid-30s for some of these policies. I mean, it is a failed presidency from top to bottom. And back to the Iran situation, for example, why we would trust Vladimir Putin to be the arbiter between us and Iran on this deal. When we call him a war criminal, we're watching him pulverize these cities. You mentioned the the poor woman who lost herself and her baby. We saw that. I mean, this humanizes what's going on there with tens of thousands and more than two million refugees. And yet we still trust Vladimir Putin to, to negotiate a good deal on the nuclear talks. I mean, tell me why. Somebody tell me why, because it doesn't make sense on his face. On Monday this past week, the Idaho State House of Representatives passed a fetal heartbeat bill by a 51-14 vote. Not a single Democrat supported that legislation. Their governor, Brad Little, is expected to sign the bill. The legislation is modeled after the Texas heartbeat bill that's been the subject of a great deal of media coverage. But what's particularly notable about the coverage of the Idaho bill is the argument, essentially, that the heartbeat really isn't a heartbeat. Albert Moeller and his briefing podcast looks at a puzzling piece in the New York Times. This particular headline news allows us to go back and look at an issue that simply needs to be considered at a deeper level. When you are looking at the use of the term heartbeat, you're looking at something that is driving pro-abortion forces absolutely crazy. And thus you have the effort to try to say whatever it is, it isn't a heartbeat. Because after all, a heartbeat makes very clear that what is beating is a heart. So the substitution of cardiac activity is not simply a synonym. It's not simply saying the same thing. Cardiac activity is a lot less personal than a fetal or baby heartbeat. But that takes me back a few weeks to an article that ran on the front page of the New York Times on Valentine's Day, February the 14th. The article's by Ronnie Karen Rabin. The headline, Heartbeat, that's put in quotation marks, moves to center of abortion debate. Now, the argument needs to be made that an insistence upon the importance of a fetal heartbeat is not new. But the Texas legislation, now the Texas and Idaho legislation, is new, and it is a direct challenge to the abortion regime and Roe v. Wade. So what's the purpose of this front page article in the New York Times? It is to try to argue that the use of the term heartbeat is an invention of pro-life propaganda. Rabin begins her article with these words, quote, The Texas law banning abortions after about six weeks of pregnancy is based on a singular premise disputed by many medical experts that once an ultrasound detects electrical cardiac activity in an embryo, its heart is beating and a live birth is on the way. 
But she goes on to say, quote, at this very early stage of a pregnancy, however, the embryo is the size of a pomegranate seed and has only a primitive tube of cardiac cells that emit electric pulses and pump blood, end quote. So almost immediately you catch on to exactly the agenda that is exposed here. And that agenda is to try to deny that this is a human being to be respected, whose life is to be defended. This is just a fetus. And the fetus, the baby doesn't have a heartbeat. It is only demonstrating early electrical cardiac activity. Now, stepping back, we can understand why the pro-abortion movement would be driven so crazy by the insistence on a heartbeat, because the heartbeat insists on humanity. And we can also understand that there is more to this picture. After all, just consider this question. Even if you try to just step back from the abortion issue, ask yourself whether you would rather try to deny that the heartbeat is a heartbeat or to defend that the heartbeat is a heartbeat. The crux of the argument in the New York Times comes down to this, quote, the consensus among most medical experts is that the electrical activity picked up on an ultrasound at six weeks is not the sound of a heart beating and does not guarantee a live birth. I'll simply insert here, at no point prior to birth is there a guarantee of a live birth. But here's the point. Unless there is something that causes an interruption in the process, there will be a live birth. And that's the premise of pregnancy. But the article goes on, quote, the sound expectant mothers hear during a scan is created by the machine itself, which translates the waves of electrical activity into something audible, end quote. But what is that called? In the examination room, under the conditions of the ultrasound, what is that sound called? It is called a heartbeat. So you can imagine where the New York Times has to go next. And I quote, doctors are partly to blame for the confusion. Many physicians whose patients are excited about a desired pregnancy will use the word heartbeat to describe the cardiac activity heard on an early ultrasound. The word has even crept into the medical literature, end quote. So now we're being told that the entire medical establishment, out of an emotional affirmation of a woman hoping to be pregnant, uses the term heartbeat when it really isn't a heartbeat. Except, of course, it is a heartbeat, even if you want to try to redefine it as an early embryonic electrical cardiac activity. The fact is, it is revelatory of life. It points to the fact this is a human life in a human womb, and it is the promise of a human birth. Coming up, the black boom. They call it the black boom, but you could really call it a working class boom. It just so happens that blacks and to some extent Hispanics are overrepresented in the working class. Jason Riley, when the Christian Outlook continues in a moment. Stay with us. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with the Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Georgine Rice. Today, the nation is wrestling with year-to-year inflation of 7%. Of course, this hits lower-income families particularly hard. As we contrast where working Americans are today relative to where they were, say, two or three years ago, we shouldn't forget the remarkable economic progress we saw for the working-class American under President Trump. 
Our next guest is focused on one piece of that story. And the title of his new book, he calls it The Black Boom. Jason Riley joined Bill Bunkley on Faith Talk, WTBN, in Tampa Bay. How frustrating is it, as I look at, uh, read your book and all of what you've compiled to educate us, it's almost as if the four years of the Trump administration and the reporting, uh, those events happened on another planet. Talk about that. Well, it's very frustrating. I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to write this book is because I don't think the, the journalists uh, uh, covering the, the White House did their jobs. Uh, it was really journalistic malpractice. And uh, there was an underreported story, and that story was that uh, prior to the pandemic, during the first three years of the Trump administration, racial and ethnic minorities in this country were doing fantastically economically. And I think a lot of that had to do with the economic policies put in place by President Trump, namely his tax cuts and his deregulatory efforts. Uh, they mostly redounded to racial and ethnic minorities. I mean, they call it the black boom, but you could really call it a working class boom. It just so happens that blacks and to some extent Hispanics are overrepresented in the working class. But what we saw was record low black unemployment, record low black poverty, and black wages rising at higher rates than white wages. And the press did not report this. They largely ignored it because they had decided that Donald Trump was a racist and that his policies were going to harm racial and ethnic minorities. And when that didn't happen, they, they played the story down. So as I was looking through and reading the very first chapter on black progress, Trump versus Obama, and I remember that as all the fanfare, the big event in Chicago, welcoming Barack Obama to be the leader of the free world, and there was a lot of discussion that there was a lot of opportunities that President Obama could do for, let's say, the working class black Americans. And I think many of us came away after the first four terms wondering, it looked like he took care of the elites both here and around the globe, but I wonder if the black working people really got a fair shake. And then comes along Donald Trump, and at least from my vantage point, looks like in his four years did so many things for the black working class that President Obama didn't do. Is that uh, Would that be true or untrue and a fair critique? I think it's a very fair critique, and it certainly comports with the data I found. I mean, people forget how bad blacks had it economically under President Obama. I mean, he was personally popular, as you would expect. In fact, he continues to be personally popular with, uh, with a lot of Americans. But his economic policies were not particularly successful. It wasn't until the seventh year of the Obama presidency that black unemployment rates fell below double digits. I mean, think about that. Blacks had it very, very tough under President Obama. And then Trump comes along, and again, we see record low unemployment rates. We see record low poverty rates. We see plentiful jobs and, and wages rising, again, at faster rates than they were among whites. And so I think you're absolutely right. And, and to me, what that shows is that free market policies do a better job of raising the wages, particularly of low-income workers, than wealth redistribution policies which is what President Obama was focused on. In other words, black people need tight labor markets more than they need a woke president. That's what the record shows. Obviously, we've had COVID come along, and regardless of which president and who did what and what was successful, what wasn't, you know, probably one of the groups least able to endure this tragic pandemic has been the low-income minorities, and we also know that because in the past, a lot of low-income minorities 
haven't had the type of ongoing preventative health care and annual physicals. But if we're going to make progress from here forward with this group in this area and other areas, what's the blueprint? Is it kind of a Donald Trump blueprint or is it a, well, I don't even know if President Biden has a blueprint. Comment on that. Economic growth is, is the blueprint. That's what the, the lesson should, we should have learned from the Trump presidency. And, and again, what, again, what Donald Trump did is something that other presidents have done and gotten the same results. You know, JFK cut taxes. Ronald Reagan cut taxes. George W. Bush cut taxes. And the same thing happened. I mean, the economy grew. It grew faster. And so tax cuts, free market policies just do a better job of lifting all groups, not just minority groups. Again, this was a working class boom. One of the things that worries me about the Biden administration is their efforts to return to the Obama-type policies that led to the slow growth we got under Obama. So Biden is focused on expanding the welfare state, uh, putting more people on the dole, you you know, the the, the sort of welfare state expansion that goes well into the middle class. People with six-figure incomes would would benefit from this, and that is not what we need. Coming up, advocating a masculinity that's grounded in scripture. Our strength is for that reason, not to be a threat, but to provide security for people and make our neighborhoods safer just because we're there. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Stay with us. The Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy believes in the calling to politics and public service. As one of the few programs of its kind based at a leading Christian university, we prepare students for exciting careers in this vital arena through a curriculum that combines rigorous study of America's founding principles with the latest tools of policy analysis. The application period for fall 2022 classes has begun. So find out more at pepperdine.edu slash SPP. That's pepperdine.edu slash SPP. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. It seems like so much in our culture is working against men today, at least manhood as the Bible would have us understand it. That's what our next guest has been thinking about. How do we sort through some of the caricatures of masculinity on the one hand and a resigned apathy to manhood on the other? Brant Hansen is the author of a new book titled The Men We Need. God's purpose for the manly man, the avid indoorsman, or any man willing to show up. Brant was a guest of Bob Lapine on KKLA in Los Angeles. So why why this subject? Why did you say let's tackle manhood? My my the producer of my radio show said I should write about this. And she is a brilliant woman. We've been working together for ten years. You're talking about Sherry. Sherry. Yes. And she said I've always discounted I'll never write about this because I'm not the guy. I don't climb stuff. I don't shoot stuff. I don't, there's nothing wrong with that. I don't hunt. I don't. I drive a mini. I play the a fl- mini Cooper. Yeah, I play the flute. <laughs> I uh, library. You were the library library <laughs> club president of the state of Illinois. That's why it's so ironic because talk about Sherry. She's like all my family are manly. You know the trappings of what we call manly. And she said, but. I knew as soon as I met your wife and daughter in particular that they felt really, really, really secure around you. Mm-hmm. I could see it. Just, I just felt it in your home. I feel it to this day. You should you should talk about masculinity because young guys in particular are very drawn to how you describe it. If I'm right about this is what actual masculinity is, it frees up everybody. Yeah. Like any guy, you could be a nerd, you could be artsy, you could be, you could be a hunter guy that can fix cars and you have awesome tattoos and stuff. Like it applies to all of us. And so 
maybe I am the guy to write this because you can look at me and go, well, if, if he comes off as masculine, like if he understands it and he nails it, if hopefully in my wife's opinion, I am, <laughs> uh, then, then maybe he's onto something. What popped out at you is going, this is what is, is at the core of all of this. It means to protect. It means to defend. It means to make a space. See, gardening isn't just like standing on the wall and defending from out intruders. It certainly is. And Adam failed to do that. He allowed this enemy into the garden. Right. And he stood there passively while his his wife was was arguing or, or being argued into blowing it. Right. But it's it's also creating a space if you're gardening for the vulnerable, for species that wouldn't exist and thrive in the wild. So you are cultivating and you're allowing these species to flourish, these things within your garden that are beautiful. And, and we're given gifts to do that. Our strength is for that reason, not to be a threat, but to provide security for people and make our neighborhood safer just because we're there. Like that's, that's our goal. But if, if guys aren't told that, they have no vision for what our life is supposed to be. But it's a beautiful thing. Even a little kid can catch on. I use the example of my son. He's seven years old. He was picking on my daughter, who was like four at the time. And she was like, hey, dad, like, get in here. And it wasn't anything awful, but he was he was just being a pest. Right. And I said, Justice, you're betraying your role here. You were supposed to defend your sister. That's why you're here. Not to be the threat. Like, you're being the guy that you're supposed to defend against. Mm-hmm. He got it. This is a seven-year-old, but even a seven-year-old, I think it resonates with the male heart so much that this role is the right one. He got it, and I'd never had a problem with him after that, picking on her, ever. If you want to grow up and become who we needed you to be, mm-hmm. real relationships will make you do that. Yes. A fake woman will not. Right. Your fantasies will not call you out to be a man. She will not challenge you. I, I shouldn't say she. It's an it. Right. It's an image. We, we gravitate toward the image because because there is this quick promise of the woman in the pornography is looking like she thinks I, I'm special uh-huh. in that picture or uh-huh. the, the video game. I'm winning the video game. We, we gravitate toward that because there is something desperate inside of us that we do want to win. Absolutely. We, when we keep going to that as the source, our soul shrinks, don't it, you think? It, it's a, it is a sucker punch. Mm-hmm. But that's the way... Like the enemy has always worked. Like it's, it's something that looks almost like the real thing. And then it leaves you alone. This is a way, if you want to give in to this short term, and I understand the drive, I love video games. I could sit and play for 16 hours, not realize the sun has gone down. I haven't even been to the bathroom for 16. Like it doesn't even matter. I understand. And I've even, I'm even coming at this. I'm trying to tell guys, like, I feel sorry for us. It has not been like this for any other generation of men in the history of humankind to have this to short circuit us. Like, it's not supposed to be this hard. This is what we have. I understand that. All of that's understood. But we don't want to emerge at 70 or 80 years old and look back at our lives, do we? And just say, I, everything was virtual. I didn't actually have any real adventures. I didn't actually, because you're going to wind it by yourself. That, that is the way the enemy works. It's always a fake of something that was God-created. The enemy can never create anything good. It's always a mockery. And it looks like the real thing. It feels like the real thing. It pays off in your brain like dopamine, like the real thing that you get the hit. 
and a sense of accomplishment, but nothing got accomplished, and now you wind up by yourself. That's hell. Like, that's, that is the enemy's trajectory, yeah. is you by yourself, isolated. Yeah. It, it sounds like you're saying, guys, we need to man up. And yet, even in saying that, there's something that you kind of, you recoil when you hear that. I do. You? And I thank you. You're, you're so perceptive on that. Because you can say, hey, guys, man up. You need to man up. Like, what does that mean? If you don't have a specific idea. Right. So what I'm trying to say in the book is like, look, we, we had this puzzle box and we've got all the puzzles, the little pieces in there. And some of the pieces are man up or fix your motorcycle or whatever, whatever it is. Right. I'm saying the box top. I'm trying to give you a box of what that's supposed to look like. And that is the keeper of the garden. Mm -hmm. That is actually manning up, mm -hmm. but it's not necessarily going to look like what, when you say man up, or, come on guys, stand up, take a stand. Like to a hundred different guys, that might mean 90 different things. It's a brave heart face paint. It's yeah. Not Right. Yeah. Right. Freedom. <laughs> but there's an, there's an element to it that right. gets at that. Right. Yeah. Because you're defending something like, but, but this keeper of the garden thing again, is this not just a show of, of power. Literally, if I'm, if I'm using whatever strength I have to make tiny vulnerable things flourish, like little children, or I'm, this is why you tell your sons, you know, you can't be cruel to this animal. Like you're here to protect this. Like that's a good thing to have a pet for that reason. You get something even more vulnerable than the kid right. in the house. Right. You could hurt it, but you're not going to because you're supposed to protect it. So finally having that vision, I think it'd be really helpful for guys. Coming up. There are women who have reacted to our passivity by saying, I guess I don't really need a man. More with Brant Hansen on The Men We Need when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. It's a look at today's most compelling stories and provides responses from key conservatives in media and politics. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. Many of us work in front of a screen today. We communicate with our loved ones through, well, screens. And we entertain ourselves in front of our screens. But is all this screen time good for us? More specifically, is it good for men? Well, let's return for a few more minutes with Brant Hansen with Bob Lapine talking about Brant's book, The Men We Need, from KKLA in Los Angeles. It seems to me that there are two, um, that there are two ways that a guy can go wrong in pursuing what God's put in his heart in terms of manhood. One is to become domineering uh -huh. and controlling right. and hyper-aggressive. The other, maybe the more prominent option is passivity. Yes. Where a guy says, I'm just going to check out, you take care of everything and I'll, I'll be over here watching ESPN. Yeah. Um, somehow we've got to recognize that both of those options have problems with them, right? Absolutely. They're both toxic. Yeah. The, the passivity can be toxic. Like we're not, um, uh, this is again. This is why I wrote the book. So I can't help can't help but keep pointing back to this idea that the keeper of the garden right gives us a construct. This is why you don't want to make a woman feel threatened, because it goes against why you're here. Okay, so it's the domineering 
mistake right. that gives us the Me Too movement. Yes. And we needed the Me Too movement because of that. Yeah. Because a lot of guys are bad actors. Right. right. So, But if we were keepers of the garden, there would be no need for it. Right. And there's there are women who have reacted to our passivity by saying, I guess I don't really need a man. Well, if you don't, honestly, if the guy's just totally passive, like what is the what is the point of that? The lack of a vision for what men are supposed to be leaves guys in a lurch, 30 years old, living at home, 35, smoke a little weed, have a part-time job. Like there's no ambition at all for something beautiful. And it hurts everybody. But I, I agree with you that passivity is actually a bigger problem. But, you know, we've made the, the mistake on the other side so much that there's a reaction to it that's very genuine and needed. In Genesis, they both fail, right? They, they fail to love God the way he deserves. So that's, that's sin. That's kata in the, in the Hebrew. But what's interesting, even as they both fail, God's reaction is to come into the garden. And he says, Adam, where are you? So he knows, he's, he knows how to call Eve Eve. He knows how to call Adam Adam. I mean, there's, there's, there's depth to those words, but... Adam's response was to blame Eve and blame God for creating Eve. But Adam's all responsible because he was supposed to be the keeper of the garden. Right. He didn't protect it. Right. So there's a burden that's on us. So I, I think you're absolutely right. I understand the cultural reactions to what men have done and the way we've been. But again, we have not had a picture to look at to say, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Thank you for joining us for the Christian Outlook. There's more to this conversation between Brant Hansen and Bob Lapine. You can listen to the full interview at ChristianOutlook.com. And while you're there, remember to subscribe to our podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Schubin and producers Charlie Richards, David Pushan, Mike Cook, Alex Perez, and James Blend. I'm Georgine Rice. Join us again next time for the Christian Outlook. But it flew away from her reach, so she ran away in her sleep.